an agricultural empire, the fulfillment of the dreams of pioneers, unexcelled in beauty, rich in achievement, and still offering a challenge mighty as the mountains. This is our Northwest Empire. I'm Felix Bennell, resident historian for Cairo Radio, heard with Dave Ross Wednesdays and Fridays on Seattle's Morning News. On this episode of the Resident Historian Podcast, rediscovering the landmark World War II chapel tucked into the woods in Shoreline. Number one, it's beautiful. It's the most beautiful building in Shoreline, in my humble opinion. And then, from the archives, the snowy night in 1955 when an airliner crashed in Burien. But first, let's go all over the map. In the nation's northwest corner is Washington. Oh, you know it's Friday when our resident historian Felix Spinell joins us for All Over the Map, which is his quick look at the stories behind the names of local places and things. And this week, the mystery of Thanksgiving Island. Good morning, Felix. This, this better be good with all that hype. Oh. <laughs> it better, yeah. <laughs> so I was very surprised a few weeks ago doing some other research and came across Thanksgiving Island in the Columbia River on an old topographic map from 1908. You know, based on that map, I'd say the island's about a mile and a half long, maybe a quarter mile wide. So that's about 200 acres by my estimate. This is close to the Washington side of the river, closer than Oregon, but it's actually part of Oregon. And where this is is down uh, Klickitat County on the Washington side, Morrow County on the Oregon side. Uh, so east of Goldendale, close to the small town of Roosevelt, Washington. Now, please, don't go rushing out in search of Thanksgiving Island. You can't see it because it's completely underwater. What? Um, when the John Day Dam was built by the Army Corps of Engineers back in the 1960s, Thanksgiving Island was one of many islands that were inundated by the huge reservoir upriver from the dam. That stretch of water is sometimes called uh, John Day Reservoir or Lake Umatilla. They flooded out towns. They had to move the railroad, the highways, all kinds of things. And they had to move canoe encampment rapids or the inundated canoe encampment rapids. Anyway... So where does the Thanksgiving Island name came from? Where does, it, where does it come from? I assume there's a good story like about maybe someone camping there or pulling ashore in a canoe on a bluff. I would think it's where day. Thanksgiving was invented. Yeah, <laughs> oh, I didn't I, see that didn't even cross my mind. I was I was I was much. I have a much smaller mind, Dave. Mm. Uh, everyone knows Christmas Island was named back in 1643 on Christmas Day, and Easter Island dates to 1722. But Thanksgiving Island, you know, there's nothing on Google, nothing in any of the newspaper archives I searched. The Army Corps of Engineers in Portland, they shared some cool old maps with me, and they told me the Corps probably acquired that in the 1950s um, from the Bureau of Land Management, but there's nothing about the name. Um, I checked with Lewis and Clark scholar Dave Nicandri, retired director of the State Historical Society. He said that name is mysterious. It's not from Lewis and Clark, though they were in the vicinity in October 1805. He thinks it's probably from the mid-19th century, the settlement period. I checked with the Assessment and Tax Department in Morrow County, Oregon. I left no stone unturned, Dave. Uh-huh. They have a 1935 map that clearly shows a name, but that's all. Uh, I did check with a historian who works for the Confederated Tribes of the Umatilla Indian Reservation. There's a known Sahaptan indigenous name for a fishing spot just across from Thanksgiving Island on the Washington side of the river, but no known origins of the name Thanksgiving Island. Finally, I pulled out the big guns. Um, I checked with Mary MacArthur. You might remember we profiled her and the book her grandfather and father began compiling back in the 1920s about Oregon geographic names. That's the Bible for all names in Oregon. She had nothing. She said, though, if we do find any documentation, definitely let her know, because she'd love to include the story in the eighth edition of the book that's coming out in the next year or two. So, I mean, it's a mystery, and it's still a mystery. And I think the same way one of our listeners solved the mystery of Kellogg Island in the Duwamish River, right? somebody out there knows something. This is like one of those podcasts where there's sort of a mystery that unfolds over yes, many episodes. Yes, yes. Someone knows something, Dave. 
And I would say if someone could figure out the name, uh, origins of Thanksgiving Island, I would personally give them a free turkey, the kind of the way Bonneville mm-hmm. used to hand out on the loading dock mm-hmm. when I first I worked at Cairo those. 30 yes. years ago. Yeah, Big yeah. frozen turkeys, yes. Yeah, wonderful. So I'll do that personally. I'll give the, whoever figures out if there's a to trace the origins of Thanksgiving Island. Because All it's, right. it's got to be a cool story. It just has to be found somewhere. I'm sure it is a cool story. Well, the gauntlet has been thrown. Of course, if you don't get any, if you don't get any takers, we're going to have to resurface Thanksgiving. We're going to have to take down that dam. Resurface oh, Thanksgiving great? Island and start digging. Because <laughs> somewhere there's something buried that explains why it's Thanksgiving yes. Island. Oh, and the Army Corps guy said precisely, said whatever was there on the island when it was flooded is still there. Mm-hmm. Probably some cranberry jello, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> or of some really well-preserved uh, dried onions in a can from Durkee. <laughs> Felix Spinell, all his features at MyNorthwest.com. Thanks, Felix. Thanks, Dave. Serving greater Seattle. On Wednesday morning, we take you back in time with Felix Spinell. And tucked away in a forested part of Shoreline is a unique artifact dating to World War II, when that area was home to a sprawling U.S. Navy hospital. A resident historian, Felix Spinell, took a walk through the woods and met up with a group looking to raise the profile of a forgotten but still sacred landmark. Felix was brought to us by Lake Washington Windows and Doors. Good morning. Morning, Dave. Yeah, I had never heard of this particular place until I got an email from Janet Way of the Shoreline Preservation Society. I met her recently on the grounds of Fircrest. That's a Washington uh, Department of Social and Health Services school that's on Washington Department of Natural Resources land north of 145th, not far from Shorecrest High School and Hamlin Park. Now, during World War II, that area was the site of U.S. Naval Hospital Seattle. At its peak, there were t- a 2,000-bed facility there for wounded sailors to recover and hundreds of personnel. 77 years ago this week, a very special building was dedicated there. That music at the top was sung at the ceremony. And tucked into the trees, that building is still standing. It has a beautiful window, which we can go around the other side and see. And then all the woodwork, there's, there's a whole lot of uh, beautiful woodwork inside that's all original, nice. all custom built. Uh, and they built it incredibly fast. They built it, there was, the groundbreaking was in June 1944, and it was finished by... November. (laughs) And so they did a really good job of building it. Yeah, that's Shoreline resident Janet Way. Now, what this is, it's a non-denominational chapel, first of its kind in the country, one of the only buildings left from the U.S. Navy Hospital and still serving in its original role. And that hospital closed way back in 1947. Architecturally, it's a Tudor Revival Chapel, and it's in this amazing forested setting. Janet's group, Shoreline Preservation Society, successfully nominated the chapel to the Shoreline Landmarks Register, They battled a bit with DSHS over the nomination and the boundaries of the land included in the designation, and the pandemic made the process stretch out a bit, but it's official as of a few months ago. I asked Janet why she and her group have devoted so much time and energy to getting the chapel listed as a shoreline landmark. Number one, it's beautiful. It's the most beautiful building in shoreline, in my humble opinion. and also because in, and because of its relationship with the forest, it's meaningful because uh, you know we've lost quite a bit of forest in the north end here with um, you know development and uh, light rail for instance it was a big swath of forest that was lost for that and so it's 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 really valuable for that reason but also um, it's really inspirational the whole story of 
Captain Boone and what he did. Yeah, Captain Boone, later Vice Admiral Joel T. Boone. That's the guy who gets credit for building the chapel. He's really an amazing figure, highly decorated veteran of World War I. Uh, within two, two weeks, he received the Distinguished Service Cross, and then a week later, the Congressional Medal of Honor for amazing battlefield medical heroics, you know, administering to people on the battlefield with no protection. He was White House physician to Herbert Hoover. Um, Captain Boone had a vision of the chapel being separated from the rest of the hospital complex and the chapel itself fitting into a special place on the hill. He'd taken over management of the place in, in 1943. And that's why the boundaries of the landmark designation get a little contentious, because DSHS wanted to preserve their options on part of the land near the chapel for a future parking lot. Now, parking lots are always villains in these things. Yeah. Um, Bob Hubenthal, director of capital programs for DSHS, he says the landmark designation was not a pleasant experience. The process itself was painful. The, the end results are something that, um, that we can manage and, and we can live with. You know, one thing it's worth pointing out, the 1944 chapel is in really good shape. This isn't some derelict old structure that nobody cares about and then some you know, public agency wants to tear down or neglect until it collapses. In fact, Sarah Steen, the landmarks coordinator for King County, that's the agency that oversees Shoreline's landmark program, she says DSHS should actually get some credit for taking care of the little chapel. DSHS have been really good stewards. They've maintained the exterior and the interior quite well. And DNR owns the land, DSHS owns the building, so they work in tandem. Um, for that site, and they've done a good job stewarding that building, and so it's really intact. We actually landmarked a number of the interior features as well because they were still there. And then the community uses the site a lot. They walk around, and they, you know, that's why they're so involved because they do care about that site. You know, and that community group in Janet Way would love to have some kind of man memorandum of understanding with DSHS so the Shoreline community could offer programming inside the chapel. You know, it's still used once a week or so by the Furcrest chaplain, and there's precedent for this. Um, Bob Hubenthal says that down at Western State Hospital, uh, DSHS leases old officers' quarters to a nonprofit called Historic Fort Stillicum, where they do programming and stuff. Still, Hubenthal's concerned that the landmark designation for the chapel adds an additional layer of bureaucracy on what has been a simple, straightforward, and successful maintenance. Uh, for, for example, if, if we want to replace the roof on the chapel, it currently has a cedar-shaped roof that is going to need to be replaced at some point in the future we would have to go through the whole Landmarks Commission review to make that kind of a, uh, a visible change to the structure because it is a listed historic structure. If it weren't, we would do what we believe is in our best interest to preserve the chapel and would take care of the roof. Yeah, that would be if they wanted to replace the roof, it'd be this big bureaucratic mm -hmm. thing in, in Bob's mind. But he it may not be as onerous as he thinks. There's many, many landmarks in King County that go through that process all the time. Now, either way, the Shoreline Preservation folks, they seem to need a plan to connect with DSHS and formally discuss some kind of partnership. It's kind of an awkward phase right now because they're coming off this sort of contentious battle over the landmark designation. Now, in the meantime, Janet Way believes her group's role is to raise the profile of the chapel, and to that end, they have one more significant step that they want to take. The plan is to go through the process for the National Register of Historic Places. That's the plan because cause it, need, it needs more respect and status and that and that would give it just additional even though the landmark is is it's is fairly powerful but you know it just having that status as a national register of historic places you know would be really a feather in the cap yeah and janet told me yesterday that uh, just recently dshs and dnr cut down a bunch of trees near the chapel which they had permission to do but there's just this sort of um 
I don't know. It's not contentious exactly, but there's the Furcrest is a DSHS facility. It's not officially. I mean, it's it's open to the public. You can go there and walk around, but it's not really a public park. There are still um, people attending this uh, school for disabled people. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's just a, a tricky kind of a, a, a mushy gray area for what the the public use of this facility really could be. And Bob Hubenthal says, you know, they're willing to consider some kind of partnership with Janet's group, you know, and, and to sit down and talk about that once the pandemic's over. So. He said you're saying, though, that the the designation actually makes maintaining the channel more difficult. You know, it does, but I don't think it's as onerous as uh, DSHS believes. I mean, there's many, many publicly owned landmark buildings where it's just a it's it's one more box to tick off to go through a process to replace a roof. You know, that that building has the the original, not the original roof, but a cedar shake style roof on it. Right. And if you can't get those out of Canada, it's easier to put on the composite tiles. But that would have to get permission because that changes the outward appearance of the building. So none of this stuff is black and white. It's all pretty gray. But the bigger issue is this cool chapel, which, again, I'd never heard of. And it's just right off the road. And it's a fabulous be a fabulous place to have programming of well, some Well, now that you've piqued our curiosity, but you say it's not exactly public. I mean, if you wanted to, are, are there weekly services offered there that you could attend? No, there's nothing regularly scheduled there. There is a chaplain mm. at Furcrest that's offered stuff there, and they have done occasionally things in the past, but there's no regular public access to it. We couldn't even get inside of it. When I went and toured it mm. uh, with Janet earlier this year, we just walked around the outside of it and peered through the windows. And the interior is gorgeous. We've, I've tweeted some pictures out from uh, from Twitter, and we'll have stuff at MyNorthwest.com, but it's just Jessica, one of these beautiful buildings, the greatest, most beautiful building in Shoreline. Yeah, well, I mean, sometimes you get you can get more support for these things if people like know what it is and can visit it and look at it and appreciate it. Exactly, and it has an organ there and gorgeous, beautiful. An organ acoustics. too, a it's working a, organ. Yes, a working organ. It's a great public asset. All right, thank you, Felix. Thanks, Dave. For this is Cairo, where modern adventure and intrigue unfold against a backdrop of antiquity. For this edition of From the Archives, in November 1955, an airliner filled with servicemen headed home for Thanksgiving crashed in Burien. And Gene Casey survived. Thank you, dear God, for victory in Korea. We're grateful that the battle's won. Here he is, our resident historian, Felix Bunnell, because yesterday marked exactly 60 years since tragedy struck a plane load of U.S. soldiers headed home for Thanksgiving from what is now SeaTac Airport. I'd never heard of this episode. Yeah, so they actually they taken off from Boeing Field, Boeing Field. A, a DC-4. It was a snowy night. It was a charter plane. And in those days, anyone could buy old leftover World War II airplanes yeah. and start a charter company. It had been uh, poorly maintained that day, and so they had a problem. And this is uh, this is the neighborhood down in Burien where there's a uh, – it's called Boulevard Park. There's a thriftway there at the corner of 120th and Des Moines Way or Des Moines Way. And so just before midnight, this plane took off, and it was filled mostly with soldiers heading home from Korea. And uh, it had a problem, and um, one of those passengers aboard was a guy named Gene Casey. I didn't really think we were going to crash, and so I started seeing houses and sheds and garages and seeing that highway with a car on it. I never thought we were going to die. I never thought anybody was going to die. I thought he was going to pull this off. So he was sitting in the back of the plane, and he was, he was looking out the window. He said it looked like a Hallmark card. You know, you could see the snow and the mm-hmm. lights coming through. and But... The pilot was able to bring this thing down in between some houses. It clipped one house, damaged a garage, and came to a rest in a field and uh, behind three houses that were there along Des Moines Way. And one of the women living in one of those houses was named Pat Anderson. I heard this noise, and I jumped up and looked out the window, and I saw a ball of fire. So I went to the telephone, and I was looking out the window, and there were three men out there, and they were three soldiers, 
and two of them are holding up the other one. So that's the amazing part of the story to me is this plane crashes, right? It's a tragedy. It explodes. Yeah. The house it's catches full on of fire. fuel because it was, had just taken off. It just off, taken right? off. Exactly. The wing tanks are completely full. It's explode, continuing to explode as it's sitting there on the ground. And this woman and her husband and at least two other families took soldiers into their home. Pat and her husband had about 16 soldiers they brought into the living room. They had guys with head wounds laying on the carpet, bleeding on the floor. Um, you know, it's cold. There aren't that, aren't that many ambulances, enough to people to transport, all, enough ambulances to transport all the people who are wounded. Um, and one of the people who's injured is Gene Casey. He's in the tail section. The thing breaks apart as it comes to a rest in this field. The pilot skillfully avoided hurting anybody on the ground. So Gene is unconscious, and he wakes up. See, when I got off of the plane, I, I thought everybody was dead. I did not know anybody was alive because there was nobody. I mean, the plane was empty. The grounds were empty. There was nothing. It was just quiet except for the fire. So it's pretty amazing because, you know, I guess in, when he woke up, the emergency workers weren't there yet. All the other guys who were alive had escaped. A lot of them were badly burned. Gene was badly burned. He helped yeah. another soldier get up and sort of pulled some of the skin off his arm. Horrific, horrific story. But again, the, the, the great part about this is the fact the neighbors, without being told to do this, just responded and made their homes into little makeshift hospitals. Um, 46 people survived the crash. 28 died. Nobody on the ground was injured. Uh, one house burned almost to the ground, and a family of five kids got out without getting hurt. Um, Gene was in the hospital and in bandaged up and in pain, and a Seattle Times reporter said, hey, if you give me an exclusive, I'll help you call your parents back and let them know they're okay, right? <laughs> So Gene, Gene's a great guy. It's so neat to be able to talk to people who survive things like this. It makes them, I don't know if they're amazing before him, but they're amazing afterward. And he was kind of a troubled teenager. He joined the Army. It straightened him out. And he'd called his parents many times before needing to be bailed out. And so early in the morning on November 18th, he calls from his hospital room, and he reaches his mom in Chicago. Well, I said, hi, Mom. And she says, what did you do now? <laughs> I, was, I was always in trouble. What did you do now? I think she thought I was flying the damn thing. I just survived a plane crash, Mom. <laughs> Is there anything to mark the spot today? It's the produce section of the Thriftway. No, there's, there's, there's nothing. That's it. Yeah, and I, you know, I went out there the other day and talked to people. People sort of had a vague recollection. They'd heard about this before. The guy who owns the Thriftway, a guy named Bill Knowles, his, uh, his grandfather started a store there in that neighborhood 75, 80 years ago. So there's, there's knowledge of it, but it's fading away, and there's no marker or anything yeah. like that. But it's and just, the problem turned out to be that they had not inspected the plane before takeoff, and there was a problem with one of the propellers. Yeah, they had some work done to a propeller. They didn't test it properly, yeah. and it wouldn't feather, and so you couldn't fly it. It was literally in the air only for about two minutes before it came to a you know, crash right in this neighborhood where people are driving by. I have no idea that it happened 60 years ago yesterday. Thank you, Felix. Thank you. I'm Felix Bunnell at Cairo Radio in Seattle. You can follow me on Twitter and read my stories and see my photo galleries at MyNorthwest.com. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend and please take a moment to give a positive rating or review. Thanks for listening and please join me again for the next episode of The Resident Historian. Yes, it's rainy in Seattle, baby. Please can I?